Our voices, our choices. The gender political podcast of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. Julius, you're involved with intersex people in Uganda. What's the most important issue you're fighting for as an activist? To stay alive. It's simply that. Everything else that we are looking at and speaking about is to make sure that we stay alive. When you happen to have a body that is not compliant to those specifications of how a body should be, then you are subjected to violence and you are subjected to exclusion. In my teenage years, my personality kind of developed on those thoughts that I'm worse than everybody simply because I'm me, you know? I was so ashamed of myself, my appearance, my words, my thoughts. Like, I could not even listen to my thoughts in my head because they must be horrible and shameful because such a disgusting creature like me is thinking them. You know, I was so deep into that self-hatred. It was really terrible. What does it mean to have a body that the majority of society believes doesn't exist or shouldn't exist? A body that exposes, as a matter of opinion, what many consider to be a fact, a body that goes beyond the narrow categories of man or woman. Julius Kakwa from Uganda, Eliana Rubashkin from New Zealand, and Irene Kazemka from Moscow are intersex or inter. In actually all modern countries and societies, a binary understanding of gender dominates, which really only allows two options, man or woman. Finding a place in this heteronormative world is difficult for intersex people. The interviews that I conducted for this podcast really shook me. The extent of the aggression that inter-people face was not so clear to me before. You're listening to the third installment in our series, Our Voices, Our Choices, which looks at a world beyond the gender binary narrative. In the first episode, we spoke to scholars and activists about how the notion of binarity, the division into just two genders, came to be how came to be the dominant view of gender around the world, and how much exclusion and violence it means for people who challenge it, who don't want to be divided or to be categorized into either man or woman. The second episode is about transgenderness, and this one, the third, is about intersex people and their struggle for self-determination. I'm Kevin Kaners from the Audio Collective, and before we get any further, I want to warn you about triggers. Our interviewees have often had traumatic experiences. They have experienced not only discrimination, but also physical, sexual, institutional, or psychological violence. They also talk about this in this podcast, especially in the second half. Irene, could you define for us intersexuality? If I may correct you... Uh, in English, we don't usually say intersexuality because it may sound like a sexuality and be confusing for people. So usually we just say intersex. Inter has nothing to do with sexual orientation, nor is it about gender identity. It's about bodies, Irene Kuzemka explains to me. She's an activist and is involved with the organization Intersex International, or OII, and helped establish its sub-organization Intersex Russia. Intersex people are people born with sex characteristics that don't fit the typical definition of male or female bodies. You know, like people are used to think that 
there are only two ways that you can have sex characteristics, you know, and that there is no difference. But actually, sex, biological sex, is a spectrum and there is a lot of variation that can be there. And by the UN estimates, about 1.7% of people on Earth have some kind of variation in their sex characteristics. Irene Kazemka grew up in Lviv, Ukraine, and currently lives in Moscow. The sexual characteristics, i.e. chromosomes, hormones, gonads, and sex organs of interpeople, often cannot be clearly assigned to the common categories of male and female, or they belong to both categories. Which, in case of me, basically means that even though I appear externally female, I have XY chromosomes, which are like typically traditionally considered male, and that I never had ovaries. On one side in my belly, I had a testicle, and on the other side, I had a streak gonad, which is basically like a piece of tissue which didn't develop into anything, but it had some ovarian tissue in it too. And that I found out that my gonads were completely removed when I was 15, even though, again, nobody told me that everything would be completely removed. Her story begins with puberty. Irene Kazemka's friends start developing breasts and getting their periods, but she doesn't, which worries her a lot. So at 15, she seeks advice from a doctor. The doctor tries to activate Irene's ovaries, which she never had, with heat. For months, Irene goes to these sessions without success. Further visits to doctors and examinations followed. And finally, she flew to Moscow with her father for several weeks. Here she was again examined by specialists before ultimately undergoing surgery. With the surgery, she doesn't actually know what will happen to her, only that some tissue is to be removed because otherwise she would allegedly develop an increased risk of cancer. For years, the doctors and her father keep the truth from her and her mother. Her father usually accompanies her to the doctors because he is the only one in the family with a driver's license. After the surgery in Moscow, Irene starts taking hormones. Even then, those hormones, you know, I never developed much breasts. And, you know, nothing was happening. And it was very sad. And I developed a lot of self-hatred and a lot of pain, really, in those years. It was a really difficult time because, as I later realized, I felt like I'm not a girl enough because I'm not developing like other girls. I felt like I'm inferior, that I'm not girly enough that there must be something wrong with me. It's not until she's 22, many years later, when she's struggling with depression, that she finds out what's wrong with her. On the news platform BuzzFeed, she clicks on a video called What's It Like to Be Intersex? She then calls her doctor and gets her medical reports. And yeah, I found out that, yeah, I'm intersex and I have this variation. At first, it was a bit of a shock. You know, especially the chromosomes, like, what? X, Y? Come on, I'm a girl. How is that possible? I didn't even know it was possible, you know? I didn't even know that you can have something different in your body internally and not know it. So at first it was a bit of a shock, uh, but very fast it turned into a lot of happiness because I was so incredibly happy to find out that oh, there, I know who I am. This is a thing. There is a word for that. There is a community. There are other people like that. And I would say that my life really only began at the age of 22 when I discovered the truth. 
Like Irene Kazemka, many intersex people don't find out the truth about their story until adulthood. Intersex children are often operated on when they are still infants. Genitals are reduced in size, gonads are removed, hormone therapy is prescribed. These are just like horrible things which really like inhumane treatment. And there are cases like the removal of the clitoris or uh, basically clitorectomy is when a clitoris is either removed or made smaller. Again, which is a horrible practice, which is quite similar to female genital mutilation. And this is without it being a medical emergency, often without even a medical necessity, but rather it is to make the children's bodies unambiguous, to adapt them to a binary gender image. DSD is the medical term for variations in sex characteristics. It stands for Disorders of Sex Development. The term discriminates against and pathologizes intersex bodies. It defines them as a disorder to be fixed. Thus, the term can help justify unnecessary interventions and surgeries. Unfortunately, the current standard medical practices in most countries of the world is, uh, in quotes, normalizing uh, non-vital surgeries and other medical interventions on intersex children. It's also known, like in legal framework, as IGM, intersex genital mutilation. This is uh, the main thing that the intersex movement is fighting for. We are fighting for the respect of our rights to make our own decisions about our own bodies because, yeah, first of all, it's a human rights violation. And then there are so many negative health consequences from those interventions. So because of those uh, interventions, so many intersex people have to live with infertility, loss of sensation, problems with urination, uh, pain, scarring. In some cases, uh, doctors and parents choose the wrong gender and assign a person surgically the wrong gender for them. And a person uh, grows up and realizes that they are a different gender that they've been assigned surgically, you know? And also just, you know, simple gonadectomies, like the removal of hormone-producing tissues in the bodies, leads often to brittle bones and osteoporosis. So yeah, there are so many health complications that could have been easily avoided if the bodies of those children just would have been left alone. It is only in recent years that there has been discussion in medicine and society about these operations and interventions, which are still commonplace in almost all countries of the world. In 2011, the Germany Ethics Council dealt with the topic, but it was not until the spring of 2021 that a law was passed to protect intersex children. Even if it leaves loopholes, it was an important step. The best protection is offered by legislation in Malta. Otherwise, there was only one other country in the world, Portugal, that legally protects interchildren from surgeries and interventions. Irene Kazemka is committed to changing that. The silence must be broken, she says. That's why she tells her story publicly, over and over again. If I would have read at least like a single sentence somewhere that, hey, your puberty can be different, you might be intersex, and that's okay, that would have changed my entire life. Irene is one of very few people in Russia who has the courage to live openly as inter. 
Her female appearance protects her from the hatred intersex or even LGBTQ people face, she says. She makes sure that intersex Russia is not seen to be part of the LGBTQ movement in Russia in order to protect her organization and interpeople because people beyond the binary gender norm are discriminated against, stigmatized, and persecuted in Russia. I am an intersex woman, so like, I, I'm a girl, I, <laughs> I use she, her pronouns, I love looking feminine, but also I love being intersex. And what really helped me, I think, is learning stories of other intersex people and hearing that my story is actually not the only one. And so many of us were kept in the dark and the truth was kept secret from us about our bodies, about what was done to us. So I realized that my story is not the only one that it is like this narrative of intersex human rights violations that just repeats with so many people all around the world. And it is a problem that not many people know about. And this actually really is what led me to activism because at first I really didn't want to commit to it. I was like, I'm not an activist. No, it was kind of scary. But like I could not sit there and do nothing when things like this are being done. My name is Eliana Rubashkin. I was born in Bogota, in Colombia. A former stateless, also former refugee, but currently living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is the country I call home and the country that allowed me to stop being stateless and give me a citizenship. I'm also a pharmacist. I am also a scientist. And uh, obviously I'm an intersex person. I'm a trans person as well. But I think my intersex identity is dominantly the identity that defines everything about me. Trans is just an aspect of a transition I did in life, but it does not necessarily define what is a core element of my identity. And yeah, I mean, uh, that's part of something else that I do, which is human rights activism, which is pretty broad and is international, obviously with a focus on the global south. And with this clear intention of also using my experience, my lived experience as a refugee, as someone that lived in refugee camps, as someone that came from the global south and had to navigate not just one continent, but multiple continents, trying to find a place where I could exist and fit. And yeah, so it's kind of like that sort of external representation of my internal struggle to have a way to fit. Ileana Rubashkin is the first intersex refugee to be recognized as a woman by the UN. But Ileana uses as personal pronouns the third person plural. I use they, them pronouns. And I use they, them pronouns because I'm exhausted of having to fit into those notions of genders. It's kind of my manifesto of telling the world, you know, leave me alone. I want to be me, a ruler of my body and my kingdom. My body, my kingdom, my sovereignty, my self-determination. And that's what matters to me. Ileana Rubashkin was born in Bogota, in Colombia. I was born with the XY chromosomes, which is 
traditionally assume that is for um, male bodies, but then I didn't have a fully developed genitalia. And one of my testes was an internal testes, and the other testes was external, sort of as a part of it, like what could be or was about to be a levia. But then a penis that was not small enough to be seen as a clitoris, or but not big enough to see as a well-developed penis. You know, the element of wanting to have a surgery is something that was in, immediately an element of consideration. But then I was also born in a very poor condition in terms of my financial situation of my mom. And I think that was one of those kind of things that protected me from having to undergo horrendous mutilations, but that it didn't protect me from what society has for us, which is, gonna, is something that comes for us for every second of our existence, because we never, we are, we're suffocated by the oppressive nature that society has for us. Eliana was raised as a boy and had to squeeze mentally and physically into that role something which became difficult to maintain, especially during puberty. Ileana's mother gave Ileana a scarf to flatten and hide their breasts. At school, Ileana was ostracized, called it. At this point, I would like to remind you of the trigger warning. Ileana tells in the following audio about the violence that she had to experience because she was born with a body that does not correspond to the norm. And many, many, many countries, like my country, Colombia, looking different, it will place you in danger. And that was me. I had breasts when I was 14. I had an undeveloped body. I was kind of looking maybe kind of masculine. I have a feminine voice. I have like a feminine behavior. I have a masculine name. So I was kind of like a, a chimera of identities that were just simply the way my body was showing up that actually made me very vulnerable and make me subject of violence and social cleansings that happened in the 2000s in my country, especially in the poor areas of my city and the social cleansings that were carried by paramilitary groups. And that's something that happened to me. So I got stabbed. Many, many times uh, as I was walking in the streets and actually cross-dressing because I remember that uh, when that happened, I was actually actively cross-dressing as a woman without even doing anything about my actual appearance, but just dressing differently. And I was stabbed in my back. When Ileana Rubashkin gets the opportunity to leave Colombia, Ileana goes immediately. A scholarship takes Ileana to Taipei, where they pursue their master's degree in pharmacy. Ileana is a complete stranger in Taiwan, lost in the culture and the language, but at home for the first time in their body. Ileana dresses feminine, gets the opportunity to take estrogen. Ileana's appearance changes. When Ileana renews their residency status as a student in Taiwan, they are asked to travel to Hong Kong to get a new passport. Their photo and registered gender no longer match the person sitting in front of the officials. So Ileana travels to Hong Kong, but doesn't even get to the Colombian embassy. They are arrested at the airport. The policemen strip Ileana naked and examine and mistreat Ileana. Ileana fears that they will be sent back to Colombia. With a cell phone that the police had forgotten to take from them, 
Liana contacts LGBTIQ groups in Hong Kong from the airport jail, who in turn call Amnesty International. Liana is able to leave the airport, but their passport remains there. Liana then immediately goes in Hong Kong to the office of the UN Refugee Agency. But then I began a very complex process of avoiding falling into statelessness for the fear of being actually deported back to my country. And then it began this process of being illegal in a place that where illegal people are not treated kindly and having to find shelters so I would not be suddenly detained and deported and sent somewhere, you know, where I don't want to be sent. So I was constantly living in like shelters and multiple locations and sometimes these accommodations are placed on genders. So they allocate men with men and women with women. And I was obviously allocated with men. I was obviously sexually abused, mistreated with other men, with our other either migrants or refugees or illegal people that felt that I was vulnerable enough to be sexually abused and I was constantly in sexually abuse. I got tired of that situation. I tried to kill myself. I tried to commit suicide. And I was then interned in a hospital. In the hospital, once again, they placed me in a male section with other male people struggling with mental health things. Mine was not a mental health condition. It was just a mistreatment, constant rapes and abuse. Managed to escape after that. Then I went to another locations on the outskirts in between the border with Shenzhen in China and Hong Kong in Yuanlong. And I lived there for maybe six to five months. But then there is when actually one night I actually got raped and I was raped very badly by five men. And I was so badly raped that I spent a very long time in hospital. And that actually was one of those things that triggered the need of the United Nations to get a way of recognizing my gender as female. And after that, it was through a specific mechanism within the United Nations to protect me because of these multiple violations that as a person I was forced to leave just because of having a different body. And then in Hong Kong, finally, I find freedom after the United Nations make an urgent call to countries to be kind and to help me. And New Zealand was the first country to call in an action and say, we're happy to accept this person. We are happy to accept that person to New Zealand as Eliana, which is the name that I decided I wanted to have. And how is it going for you in New Zealand? Can you live here without being discriminated against? No, unfortunately, no. That, that dream hasn't been achieved anywhere in the world, unfortunately. I'm really sorry to tell you, there is no paradise for intersex people nowhere in the world. Nowhere. There is no safe place for intersex people. We all intersex activists, we might look bright in the outside, we're broken in the inside. There are things going, like there are developments that we advocates and activists have been trying to change. We are hoping that the anti-discrimination bill for the first time will protect intersex people because we haven't been here protected for being intersex. So if somebody goes in the street and starts to mistreat me on the, on, on the basis of my intersex condition, nothing will happen because we are not protected under the law. 
we are invisible under the Human Rights Act of New Zealand. And there is a current intention of including us by using the word sex characteristics as a ground of protection on discrimination. Because gender doesn't protect us. Sex doesn't protect us. If somebody say, I am protecting you in the basis of religion, race, and sex and gender, or let's say gender identity, oh, great, you are not helping because you are not protecting intersex people because it's not about our sex, it's not about our gender, it's about our variation of sex characteristics. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Some people think, oh, let's use the third gender or let's allow birth certificates to have a third gender. No, that doesn't help. That only marginalizes me. That only signals who I am. That only places me in danger. What would help to simply not register the gender at all? Not to mark it at all. And if you have to mark it at all, make, make it super easy for a person to change it at any time in life. In search of roots, Ileana Rubashkin has studied interhistory. That inter are tabooed, their stories kept silent. That is more the case in recent history. In antiquity, there are many stories of hermaphrodites. They appear in mythology, sometimes as deities. Every single culture of the world, particularly cultures before Christianity, understood the existence of our identities, particularly indigenous populations around the world, they, they understood that we were, you know, treasures, that we were just a manifestation of the multiple colors that nature has, and the true diversity of how nature works. Ileana tells me about the mahu. In ancient Hawaiian, this term means in the middle, and they are, and were, read as people of a third gender, who were revered as priestesses, healers, and kings. It hurts Ileana when the story of Hawaiian kings is not also told as a story of intersex people. When they're trying to actively remove us from that history that actually is our history, that's incredibly painful. Because it's the only thing that maybe we have as intersex persons. We can definitely say, you know what? There was a time in the past where an intersex king was praised for being intersex, was loved, and he ruled a country. No, now we cannot even have that, because that has also been taken from us. If you're interested in learning more about the history of how the binary view of gender developed and the role colonialism played in it, then I highly recommend you check out the first episode of this podcast series. All of our fights, all the challenges of our existence stem from the mindset that was tampered with through colonialism. You know, when, when you talk to some of these very old people in rural areas, you find that they don't have such trouble with diversity, with diverse bodies. But something happened when these people came from the West bringing Christianity and all of, and, and along with it, their culture. But of course, there was the, the, the element that was very definite to make sure that we, we begin to fight each other we begin to become enemies to one another. I think it was a divide and rule kind of principle, but it has stayed with us. And I think it is a very big conversation for us to, to talk about here in, our, in my activism in particular, revisiting the issue of language, the issue of importation of culture, changing of mindsets, you know, changing hearts and minds. Julius Kakwa lives in Uganda, in the capital Kampala, 
He's one of the best-known faces and activists of the inter- and LGBTIQ movement, not only in Kampala, but across the continent. He uses the personal pronouns he, him. His commitment makes him visible, a big risk he takes in a country where homosexuality is forbidden and LGBTIQ have virtually no rights. From 2009 until now, we have had a series of bills being tabled. And this came with the advent of uh, extreme evangelical anti-gay invasion from the United States here. Since then, we, we have a series of bills that are seeking to aggravate punishments in the, the penal code. So there's uh, this kind of hate climate being perpetrated by lawmakers continues. And this is because, you know, our legal framework and our social life and our politics are all intertwined and religious dogma. Much more threatening than the institutional discrimination and criminalization, however, is the violence which inter are exposed to on the streets. It is especially dangerous for those whose bodies make them particularly visible in society. For example, if an interperson with a female appearance has strong beard growth, then they have a harder time hiding and protecting themselves. LGBTIQ are persecuted, abused, and even killed in Uganda without any consequences, says Julius Kakwa. Nobody will arrest a mob. You know, they will kill someone and you'll be in the news and that's it. Legitimate issues can't get through court. An issue around an interbody cannot go anywhere. So the concept of human rights exists in principle, but it's something that we are fighting so much to see that it gets in practice. It's about the most basic rights. The right to physical integrity, the right to education, to housing. Many inter-people in Uganda live in poverty. To that end, Julius Kakwa's organization also carries out social work, for example, offering trainings in manual trades, because very few intersex children finish school. There's a lot of bullying. If you have a male, a child that has been registered as, as male, and then they start to menstruate, that is um, the trauma that they go through, the kind of bullying that they go through, both from teachers and non-teaching staff in their schools. People can be so vindictive. So it is very traumatic for a child like that, that if they are forced to continue going to school and are facing these kinds of, uh, of bullying and being, you know, thrown, stuff being thrown at them, then such children will run to the street. They'll run away from home, they'll run from the school. And um, when they get older, if they have not committed suicide, and if they're not abused and killed, they kind of make their way to the city and get on the street. Julius Kakwa explains to me that how intersex people are perceived differs across Uganda. In some ethnic groups, they are revered as saints, but in most, they are still seen as a curse. Many babies born with ambiguous gender markers are killed shortly after birth. The surgeries is not so much an issue here, but there is another equivalent of that. We have traditional doctors, medicine men, all kinds of, you know, seers in the communities who provide mutilations and other interventions that will either maim the child to death 
or they will come up with some kind of ritual that terminates the intersex life as a way of cleansing uh, the family of such misfortune. All kinds of things are going on there, you know, rooted in some of our cultures. And so a lot of children are, in a way, killed. Killed, but from the mother's perspective, it is for the best. It is to, to save the, the child, but also to save them, because we're still in a very patriarchal society where many of these rural mothers will do anything to sustain their marriages and to sustain their position in a very extensive family that they've married into. So there's a lot of pressure on them to produce the right kind of children. Preferably, those would be male children. But if you cannot have a male child, if you happen to have a female child, then it should be a healthy, normal female child. Julius Kakwa himself was born Julia, and he says that the love of his parents saved him. They wanted him to live. Even as a child, he realized that he is different. His mother kept him away from other children, warned him not to show himself naked, took him to medicine men who tried to heal him with herbs. At the missionary school in puberty, it became more and more difficult to hide and continue to maintain the image of Julia. The beard begins to grow, the voice changes begin. There were very judgmental people in church, but there were also some amazing people there. So one of the people that I met uh, in church was a medical doctor. And he, he he's actually late now, but he said, you know, there's um, something in medicine that can describe what you're telling me. And so he offered to, you know, look, look at me and ask me some questions. And that is how... Um, I learned that I don't have to die or commit suicide. He goes to Kenya to study. When he returns, he is wearing a suit. Julia has become Julius. He has to endure many obtrusive questions. And without him wanting it, his story is taken up by the press and he becomes a target. He gets many messages and letters full of hate and threats of violence. He goes to South Africa for a while, where he gets a good job in a software company. When he sees that the Ugandan media is again reporting about an intersex boy, he returns, faces the public, and now, self-determined, tells his story on television. He founds the Support Initiative for People with Atypical Sex Development and has been fighting for LGBTQI rights in Uganda ever since. I don't think I'm courageous. I think I'm just resilient. I'm just trying to stay alive. So just like everybody else, we are not different from anyone else. We are not freaks. You know, just because you're different doesn't mean that you are incapacitated, doesn't mean that you're incapable of of contributing to life and to society just like everybody else. So that is for me. I think I I really, really would like to be regarded as equal to others and not less than. This was the third episode of our series, Beyond the Binary Gender Narrative, from the series, Our Voices, Our Choices. You can subscribe to this and other Heinrich Bull Foundation podcasts on popular platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or in the app of your choice. 
feel free to rate us and recommend us to others. You can also send us feedback and suggestions at podcast at bull.de. That's podcast at B-O-E-L-L dot D-E. This podcast is a production of the Audio Collective and was originally produced by Vanessa Lovell. My name is Kevin Kaners. So long for now.